Thank you, Martin. Um, before, well, um, good morning, church. Sorry, I'm just I'm surviving on one and a half hours sleep, but we're all good. But um, you know, just this week, just sharing a little, just been to Sydney and and just really with the Rise Movement and seeing what God's doing in three cities in, in Sydney, Melbourne, and Auckland, just uniting under the name of Jesus and different denominations. That is the scene of heaven, isn't it? That is, there's no, there is no divide, there's no division. And, and just really encouraged um, to just see, you know, um, the young generation really rising up. Uh, you know, a few years back in ministry, we were, you know, among pastors, we were worried. We were like, oh, is the young generation going to rise up? But I can see God really doing a renewal in, in their lives and, and them really hungering for it and repenting of, of sin and, and, and really just coming to Him. But um, today I just wanted to, sh- before I start, share a song, uh, quite a significant song for me in, 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 this, in this season, and it's called Singing in the Victory. And today I'm actually going to be preaching about anxiety, and that's something that, that for me has been quite a big thing in my life. The chorus is, I'm standing in the victory, the victory of the cross, resting in the shadow of your redeeming love. I'm standing on the promise, the promise of new life. Because I am yours forever. And Jesus, you're my... <laughs> I told myself I wouldn't cry on this. But God's word speaks often about victory and defeat. Deuteronomy says, The Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. But how can we relate an Old Testament passage about victory in battle? Weren't these verses written to a, a nation of former slaves who were at war with the nations around them? Yes. And yet, the Bible says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. It says that the word of God is alive and active, Hebrews 4.12. This means when the psalmist write, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who threats down our enemy, our foes. We know that God will also threat down our own foes here in the present day. It means that we are just as desperate for God to stand beside us in our daily battles as King David and the Israelites were. If there is any difference between us and the psalmist, it's only that we know the name of the Messiah who have come to give us victory. When we fall prey to worry, to doubt, to pride, or fear, we can call on the name of Jesus and trust that he will deliver us from the present evil age. It says that in um, Galatians 1.4. If we are unaware of our need for his victory, our eyes are blind to the, the battle that rages around us. If we feel helpless in the midst of spiritual battle, God wants to be the lifter of our heads. He wants our hearts to sing in accordance with 1 Corinthians 15, 57, which Martin read out. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first point I want to make is we need to trust God with our anxiety. Referring back to the song, verse 1 says, I will not be anxious Jesus, you are near. The peace of God, 
surrounding me, casting out all fear. We are a culture of worriers, aren't we? We worry about which school to attend, which career to pursue, and which person to marry. And if the Lord blesses us with children, we begin to worry about which school our children will attend, which career they will pursue, and which person they will marry. Not quite there yet, but... The Bible is well aware of the struggle. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not be anxious. Why does he give us this command? Why does he repeat this command several times in the New Testament? While being troubled or in a state of distress is, is not a sin. It becomes sin when we allow that distress to turn into anxiety and distrust God's promises. Left to ourselves, we do not simply trust that God will take care of us. We trust instead in a bank account, in an education, or a job. Then when these areas of our lives fail us, we become anxious. Then this is a sin. And the enemy wants to use this sin to cripple us, to destroy our faith in God, and to keep us from living as people who have been set free by the gospel. So instead, we must internalize what the Bible says about anxiety. So that when trouble and distress strikes, and it will, <laughs> thanks, Alan. <laughs> so instead, so, ah, let me hang on. <laughs> so instead, we must internalize what the Bible says about anxiety. So that when trouble and distress strikes, like, the, that like it will, we can respond as Christ would respond. And when we do fail and our hearts give in to anxious thoughts and emotions, praise be to Jesus Christ who has paid for that sin already and making a way to cast every anxiety on our Heavenly Father, trusting again that He will lift us up in due time. So what does the Bible tell us about anxiety? In the first book of the Bible, we learn that anxiety is common for God's people. It's not a rare emotion. It plagued our first patriarch, Abraham, Abraham's fam and his family tree. Even though Abraham was called a friend of God in James 2.23, yet he was constantly worried. He worried that the king of Gerard uh, this is going to be a weird name. Abu Malek? Yeah. Gerard, do you want to help me? Is that Abu <laughs> Abu would kill him to get to his beautiful wife, Sarah. So Abraham said to Sarah, This is how you show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Can you imagine saying that to your wife? I'm getting trouble, PJ. God appeared to Abimelech in a dream and delivered Abraham from Gerard. But despite this miraculous act of God's faithfulness, Abraham continued to feel anxious, didn't he? He was especially worried about his lineage. How could he have a child when he and his wife Sarah were so old? In the midst of this doubt and anxiety, God gave Abraham a son, Isaac just as he had promised. But then it moved on to the next generation when Isaac 
had a wife of his own, Rebecca, the Lord led them to Gerard again. I don't know why they keep going better. Where everywhere like was still king. And um, Genesis 26, 7 says, when the man of the place asked him about his wife, he said, he, uh, she's my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking at least the man of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Like father, like son. The generational anxiety did not stop there. Isaac and Rebecca had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau worried that he would die of hunger, so he sold his birthright to Jacob in exchange for food. This caused a strained relationship between the two brothers, so Jacob fled, worried that Esau would kill him. For many years, Jacob was anxious about his relationship with his brother. But when Esau and Jacob finally reunited, Esau ran to meet him and embrace him, threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and they both wept. God had proven himself faithful once again. And yet, Jacob's struggle of anxiety continued. Jacob, who then became known as Israel, had 12 sons. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. So Joseph's brothers became jealous and sold Joseph into slavery. Then they lied to their father, Jacob, convincing him that Joseph had, had been eaten by an animal. Can you imagine how Jacob had, must have felt in that moment? It was no wonder he became anxious about the well-being of his youngest son, Benjamin. Years later, when Jacob's family was affected by a famine, he sent his sons to Egypt to buy grain. But Joseph did not send Benjamin. Um, Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brother for he feared that harm might happen to him. Even as an old man, Jacob was worried. And what did God do in response to Jacob's worry? God proved himself faithful. Soon, Jacob heard that Joseph was not only alive, but he had risen to power in Egypt. So Jacob set out on his journey to be reunited with his son. God said to him, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. Even after God has proven himself faithful time and time again, his first words to Jacob were, do not be afraid. God knows that his children struggle with worry and doubt and fear. We are not alone in our anxiety. But what do we do when anxiety hits? How should we respond when we feel anxious? There is no better example of godliness in the midst of anxiety than the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Praise be to God that we have a Savior who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. We know, the pressure of tempta we know what the pressure of temptation feels like. And we know what it feels like to find release from that pressure as we cave in to our earthly desires. 
Only Jesus knows what it feels like to experience the pressure of temptation as it built and built without ever giving in to the temporary release of sin. Many of us have been tempted to distrust God about the future. But who can say that they sweat drops of blood as they resisted that temptation, refusing to let it become an offense to the Father? So let's look at how Jesus responded to anxiety. On the night of the Passover, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane with one goal, to pray. The Garden was simply a place to get away and spend time with the Father. We were told in Philippians 4.6, Do not be anxious about, any, about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thankfulness, let your requests be known to God. So this is what Jesus um, did in the Garden. Matthew 26, 38, uh, 39 says, He fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Faced with the temptation to be anxious, Jesus prayed to be spared from imminent pain and death. He prayed that he would not have to drink the cup of wrath he prayed that he would not have to drink the cup of, wrath, of the wrath of God. He prayed that his father would not turn his face away from him. In times of distress, God wants us to pray like this. That's why there are more than 60 prayers of lament in Psalms. That is why Jesus quoted a, a Psalms of lament on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt the pain the same way. Jesus felt pain the same way we feel pain. He felt forsaken by his father, um, much like we have felt forsaken by loved ones. He was fully God, yes, but he was also fully man. It's the Son of Man, Jesus, who shows us that our first response to anxiety should be to pray. Our second response should be to place our trust in the Lord. That's why we sang in the bridge of both my life, I will place my trust in you. Jesus' prayer doesn't end with the request to let this cup pass. He says in Matthew 26, 42, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus puts his trust in the Father regardless of the outcome. We see, the, we see this trust in the Psalms of Lamentation, uh, the Psalms of Lament as well. Psalms 56, 3 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Psalms 55 starts with this request. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. And it goes on to say, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. But it ends with the declaration, I will trust in you. Does our trust guarantee our safety? No. Sometimes we trust God in spite of the danger. The cross is our proof. We are not promised comfort. But if we pray and place our trust in the Lord, we are promised that the peace of Christ, that 
that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The second point I want to make is the victory in the cross. In the, going back to the song, it says in verse 2, When I have forgotten the fullness of your grace, yes, I remember Calvary when you took my place. We are commanded to turn and flee from all temptations, including anxiety and distress. But the command doesn't stop there. If we simply fast from sin, we will eventually starve. And then we will turn back to our vices in an attempt to satisfy our spiritual hunger. Many, many think that the, the message of Christianity is moral, um, moral deity, nothing more than a distant God giving us more rules to obey. Do not do this. Do not abstain from that. Say no to these things. This is not the gospel, but rather a recipe for despair. The gospel is that Jesus takes away our sin while filling us with something better. That is why we have been given the Lord's Supper. The bread and the cup remind us that the desires of our hearts can only be satisfied by Christ's work on the cross. What happens when we remember this truth what, and what happens when we forget? Let's start by looking at what, what happens when we fail to remember God's promises. And one of the, the most famous examples of this sin comes from Luke 22. It's the story of Peter denying Jesus on the night of his arrest. Ironically, it's earlier, earlier in the same chapter that we find Jesus explaining the Lord's Supper to his disciples. Peter, along with John, were one of the two disciples that Jesus had entrusted with preparing the Passover meal. As they reclined at the table for the night, Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is the first promise Jesus made that night. He promised that he would suffer. This was not the first time that Jesus spoke of his suffering. In Matthew 16, Jesus prophesied that he would go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. You find that in Matthew 16, 21. Peter was not a fan of this promise. In, in fact, he disliked this prophecy so much that he took Jesus aside and begin to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. That's in Matthew 16, 22. Peter was willing to accept God's promises until it meant suffering for someone he loved. This is the root of Peter's denial. Peter failed to remember the entire scope of God's promises. Perhaps he remembered Jesus' promise to make the disciples for sure men in Matthew 4, 19, or the promise that Peter would be called a child of God in John 1, 12, who would bear much fruit, John 15, 8, and receive a righteous person's reward in, in Matthew 10, 41. He also believed that the last will be the first, Matthew 20, 16, and the disciples will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, 28. Peter, of course, did not rebuke 
Jesus for these promises, did he? But when Jesus was arrested and the disciples began to scatter, Peter failed to remember Christ's promise to suffer many things and be killed. He must have also forgotten another promise that Jesus made that, that evening. Jesus said, Peter, the crow will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. In Luke twenty-two, thirty-four, Peter's failure to remember these, this promise was in itself a sin. The effects of the sin were immediately felt. When he had denied Jesus for the third time and he heard the, crow, <clears throat> the rooster crow, Peter came to his senses. He remembered God's promises. He remembered that Jesus is the one who, who is written. Does he, not, does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Numbers 23, 19. When Peter, first, when Peter realized what he had done, the Bible says, and he went out and wept bitterly. Luke 22, 60, 62. This is what it looks like to forget God's promises. It is bitter. In the end, it leads only to sadness and regret. And if there is no repentance, it leads to death. This is why Jesus is so insistent that we remember the cross. Because his death and resurrection are the fulfillment of every promise God has made to us. This includes the promise that in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.22 And it also includes the promise that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God in Acts 14.22. Just the last one in, tw- in 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for no matter how many promises God has made, there are yes in Christ. Therefore, we cannot pick and choose which promises to trust. Like Peter, we must learn to stand on every word Jesus has said. Let's look back at the Lord's Supper passage and the promises Jesus made that night. In Luke 22.15, Jesus promised that he would suffer. Then the passage continues. And he took a, a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is the second promise Jesus made at Passover. He promised that his suffering would not be the end of the story. The kingdom of God will come. If Peter had remembered correctly, he would have known that the coming kingdom was tied to the death of Christ. The promise that Jesus made in Matthew 16 was not just that he would suffer and be killed. The full promise was that he would be killed and on the third day be raised. We must not forget the cross. We must always remember the cross in light of the empty tomb. This is the fullness of God's grace. The resurrection is the reason that Calvary's cross is a symbol of victory. There's one more promise that Jesus made at the Last Supper. Luke 22, 19-20 says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it 
and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. This is the third and greatest promise that Christ made that night, a new covenant. Christ would not only die and rise again, but he would include us in his resurrection. It is true that everything God does, he does for his name's sake. One of the ways that God glorifies his name is by sending his son to die for his children. Think about what Jesus, uh, what Jesus said when he broke the bread. Why did he give his body on the cross? He gave his body for you. Why was the cup of God's wrath poured out on Jesus? It was poured out for you. How could we forget this truth? How can we ever take this good news for granted? Why would we ever miss an opportunity to remember? And yet, we're not called to take the Lord's Supper, the remembrance of the gifts we receive from the cross. Instead, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, of him. So when we take the bread and the cup, we remember a person. We remember the, uh, the person who took our place on the sinner's cross. We remember a person who demonstrated his love by laying down his life for us. We remember a person who offers new life to those who believe. We remember Jesus is our rock. And because of him, we can stand on God's promises. One last point. And it's, I'm calling it singing in the victory. Back to the song, the bird says, There is no one like you, God. Love immeasurable and strong. There is no one like you, God. So lead this heart to sing in awe. Our freedom from, from anxiety and victory in Christ were never meant to terminate on us. Ultimately, we cast anxiety on God and remember the cross so that we can give Jesus the glory he is due. When we rest in God's promises and we allow our hearts to be filled with his love, we cannot help but express that love back to him. This is what it means to be a Christian. It is not simply believing. It is both believing and confessing. This is what it means to pray. It is not only asking for blessings, interceding for others, and confessing our sin. It is also adoring God for who He is and what He's done. And one of the ways we are called to adore God is through song. Through Scripture, we, we are given more than 50 commandments to sing to God. It says four times in Psalms 47, 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. The Bible makes it clear that if we had been given a voice, God wants us to use that voice to worship Him through both adoration and song. Let's first look at the biblical concept of adoration. The word, the word adore is not often used in God's word. In some translation, it can't even be found. 
And yet we see this word in every hymnal, in every hymn book, and we find it in every book ever written about prayer. Why is this? Church tradition tells us there are four, com- four main components of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. But where do we find these components in the Bible? And why is adoration typically listed first? The answer is found in Matthew 6, 5-15, which is known as the Lord's Prayer. In this passage, Jesus teaches how to address God. And his address begins with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. No, we do not find the word adore in this passage, but there is no mistaking that God, that Jesus begins his prayer with adoration. He tells the Father that his name is to be hallowed. Most of us don't use that word or even know what that means. We might use it to describe the, the hallowed halls of an old college or the hallowed grounds of a historical church. Maybe at one point in our lives, we ask our neighbors for candy on Halloween, which traces its roots back to the phrase hallowed evening. But none of these uses are what Christ intended when he said, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed means to honor as holy. So when Jesus said, hallowed be your name, he is adoring the Father for His holiness. He's telling God there is no one like Him. He's praising the Father for being set aside from everything and, and everyone else in all creation. This is how God wants us to approach Him and address Him. He wants us to adore Him. He wants us to adore Him for His holiness. Even the angels in Isaiah 6 can't help but cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 6, 3. This is also the first prayer we find in the book of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When we see God for who He is, we can't help but praise Him for His holiness. We can't help but adore Him. So, what must we, so why must we express our adoration through song? Isn't singing something that requires special skill? Is everyone required to sing? For, you know, if you guys haven't asked yourself that question at one point in your life, maybe now is, is something that you can think about. God's Word doesn't distinguish between those who are musically inclined and those who aren't when it commands us to sing. It simply commands everyone to sing over and over and over again. It is the most repeated commandment in the Bible. As one might expect, that more gifted singers were asked to lead the singing like we do on a Sunday morning. In First Chronicles 15.22, another name that I'm having trouble with, Kananaya. Man, they got hard names. The head Levite was in charge of the singing. That was his responsibility because he was skillful at it. So who was Kenaniah leading? Earlier in this chapter, we read that King David had assembled all Israel in Jerusalem. 
at this time, there were over a million men in the Israelite army. This number did not include women, children, the elderly, or the tribe of Levite and Benjamin. In other words, when David assembled all Israel, he was assembling millions of people. All of God's children were there. The song that was sung that day, the song that was sung that day was found in First Chronicles 16. Here are some of the lyrics. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. Perhaps King David was the more gifted, the most gifted songwriter in Israel. But perhaps Kaniah was the most skilled singer. But still, there were millions of people singing and shouting to God in that assembly. And as they sung, they proclaimed that God is worthy of more singers. All the earth should be singing Him. His deeds should be declared in song by all people, not just singers, not just instrument, instrumentalists, not just the millions who were gathered that day, Everyone in creation should sing to the Lord. This is worth considering the next time we are tempted to sit in the back of church and observe as the rest of congregation sing. I'm not saying if you physically cannot stand that, that's, but it's, it's, more a hard, it's a more hard posture to just sit back and watch. This should, conv- this should convict us when we casually approach God in the assembly thinking more about our preferences than His holiness. This should encourage us when we find ourselves standing next to us, you know, maybe Kara, who's belting out a beautiful harmony. But God wants all of us to sing. If your heart does not want to sing to Him, then ask God to align your desires with His desires. Ask Jesus to remind you of his immeasurable love demonstrated on the cross for you. Ask that he would lead your heart to sing in all of him. We can proclaim his salvation because his mighty hand has reached down to save us. We can hallow his name because he has called each one of us by name. We can stand on the promise of new life because all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. And we can sing because we belong to Jesus and Jesus is victorious. I'll get the team to come up as I wrap this up. The gospel is good news, like Ian tells us so many times in the Bible. It's a captivating song, that story of Israel beginning with a family filled with anxiety. Abraham worried about Isaac. Isaac worried about Jacob. Jacob worried about Joseph. And still, God chose to bless them. The gospel is not that we, by our own resolve, are able to overcome anxiety. The gospel is that Jesus came to earth and resisted every temptation even the temptation to allow anxiety to become sin so that he could sacrifice his perfect life for all God's children. 
this story, the story of the gospel, is worth remembering. And more than that, the hero of this story is worth adoring. He is holy. He's worthy of our song. And as we sing to him, we must remember the book of Psalms, the songbook of the Bible. Does not exclude those who struggle with worry. The Psalms are proof that God meets us right where we are. He wants us to be honest with Him, even in seasons of lament. It's an all-inclusive songbook, and we are invited to, to participate. The final verse of the final Psalm says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Can we stand? Father God, I just thank you that you, you do meet us at where, where we're at. That Father, that you will, you will help us overcome the temptation to worry, to give in to anxiety and fear. Father, you know everything that's happening in our lives. Father, we pray that you would remind us of your gospel, of your sacrifice on the cross. That, Lord, that we would find our victory in you and not in our circumstances. And, Lord, we just pray that in times of doubt, in times of worry, that we would push beyond that and sing out in adoration to you, Lord. The Lord, that we will not be, be worried about what people might think or worried that we will look silly or even that you might not even be listening. But Father, we pray that we would stand on your promises, that Lord, we would go into the Bible, we will write down each and every one of those promises. And Lord, that we would stand on them because you are our rock. So Father, we just commit all of us who struggle with this. That Lord, your name be lifted up. All God's people said. <laughs>